Please rise for the reading of the scripture. Uh, we will be reading from the book of Second John. We'll read the complete book. It can be found on page 1025 in your pew Bibles. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourself so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This is God's word. Let's pray together as we look into God's word. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we open your word today on the Sunday that we remember and recognize as Pentecost Sunday, that day your disciples were waiting for after your son ascended to heaven, waiting with a commission they were given to make disciples of all nations, but told not to go forward until your gift had come upon them, your Holy Spirit. And Lord, as that spirit fell, and as they opened their mouths, uh, men and women were cut to the heart and turned from sin and turned to you, and such has been happening ever since. And so, Lord, as we open your word this morning, we pray your spirit would be with us and would cut us to the heart, that we would see you and hear you, that we would be convicted of sin, that we would be encouraged in your love and that we would turn our hearts to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the small town that I grew up in, in rural Nebraska, uh, everyone was religious. You know, there's a, it wasn't a big town, about maybe 4,000 people. There were 13 churches in that town of 4,000. Uh, and, and, you know, none of them were necessarily packed. Um, I don't know of any of them that maybe had more than 200 people going, most of them a lot smaller. But whether you went to church or not, everyone was religious in this town. 
And by religious, what most people meant was that they basically tried to live a good life. You know, to be a positive influence on society, to do more good things than bad things, uh, to be a generally decent person, to live the kind of life that they believed God would reward, uh, whether, you know, with success here on earth and hopefully maybe somehow with eternal life in heaven. Living in New England for what has now been five years, uh, it's a little bit different. Almost no one here is religious. Uh, We live in the least religious region of the country. And yet, it's not nearly as different as most people think. The main difference is that instead of identifying yourself as religious, people prefer to describe themselves here as spiritual. You hear that a lot. I'm I'm spiritual, not religious. But what they mean by that is essentially the same thing that the good people of Nebraska meant by the word religious. Try and live a good life. Put out positive energy. Make a difference in society care for the planet. It's just that that most people in New England uh, don't need church to help them do that. They are spiritual, but not religious. But one of the the questions that, that few religious or spiritual people stop to ask is whether their understanding of life and of God is true whether or not it's true. We all have beliefs about God. Every single one of us who walks on this planet has some idea and belief about God. We all have beliefs about how life should be lived on earth. But are those beliefs true? Are they correct? Do they correspond to reality? And how do we know? If we're honest, uh, the idea of truth is not Uh, a category that many people are interested in today. Uh, Maybe if you're talking about math or finance or science, but when it comes to morality, how we behave, or philosophy, how we think, or especially uh, spirituality and religion, how we relate to God, we're told that, that truth is the wrong category, that there are no necessarily right answers. Everything is relative. And so, you know, what you have your truth, and and he has his truth, and she has her truth, and they have their truth, and I have my truth, and, and what's right for me might not be right for you, and what's true for us might not be true for them. What matters instead is the sincerity with which you hold your beliefs. Do you really mean it? That's what we value. But whether those beliefs are right or wrong or true or false that's not a category that we tend to operate in these days. You know, who's to say who's right and wrong? Who's to judge? That's the world we live in today, a world where perception replaces reality, where opinion matters much more than fact, and where any claim to actually maybe have figured out or or have some understanding of the truth is dismissed as suspicious, uh, you know, arrogance at best, and kind of a manipulative power play at worst. So what do we do? 
Is, is that the best we're left to work with as we make our way through life? Is what we believe and how we live really that subjective? Uh, is reality really whatever we want it to be? Can I say to the police officer who pulls me over for speeding that, that what that sign means to you might mean that to you, but it doesn't mean the same thing to me? I mean, you, you, it, you see 50, I, you, know, you see 35, I see 50. You know, does that work? You know, it doesn't take long to figure out that this whole idea and suggestion that everything's relative, that there's nothing right or wrong about morality, falls apart really fast, which then leaves us with an urgent question. What is actually true? There are objective facts in life. There are some things that are right and some things that are wrong. I mean, even the claim itself that everything's relative, that's a very absolute claim. That's basically saying, you all don't know what you're talking about, but I can see the, the truth from here. And so, you know, we need to wrestle honestly with that question, especially if what's at stake in our conversation is how to know and relate with God. If, if, if there is such a thing as truth, if there is such a thing as right beliefs and wrong beliefs, then, then this is really the most important question we can wrestle with. What is true about God and how to know him? And that's a question John is very concerned about in the letter that he's given us here, his second letter. Notice how he mentions the word truth five times in the first four verses of his letter. He writes to a people whom he loves in truth. And not only he loves them, but all who know the truth also love them because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. He extends them grace and mercy and peace from God, the Father and Jesus, his Son, in truth and love, according to reality, what is true. And then finally, he rejoices in verse 4, to find that some of the people he's writing to are walking in the truth. Their life corresponds to what is true, what is real. John is very concerned that the people he writes to are walking according to the truth. That's a big deal. And he's not, he's not interested in this because he's like so excited about making sure everybody knows he's right. That's often the posture we take when we talk about truth. How do I convince you that I'm right and you're wrong? And we kind of take this arrogant posture. That's not what drives John's interest in the truth here. Rather, he's interested in the truth because he is passionate about seeing people live in an abiding relationship with God. He wants us to know God. We've seen that throughout 1 John, which we just finished uh, working through a couple weeks ago, we're going to see it here in Second John and in Third John next week, that, that John wants his readers to know God and to have confidence in that relationship. And to do that, they must be anchored in what is true, not in what is false, not in what is make-believe, but what is real, what is truth. Because God is not whoever we want him to be. Any more than your child or your spouse or your neighbor or your boss are who they, who you want them to be. You know, 
said this before, but you know, try treating your spouse the way that the average religious or spiritual person talks about God. I like to think of God as such and such. You know, I like to think of my spouse as a six-foot-tall neurosurgeon with a summer house on Martha's Vineyard. You know, is that loving to your spouse? Is that honoring to them? Not unless it's true. If it's true, absolutely. But if it's not true, it's, I don't know what it is. It's weird. And, and so the way your spouse is not whoever you want them to be, and, and to honor them and love them, you treat them and think about them according to who they really are. The same is true for how we ought to think about and treat God. He is not whoever we want him to be. He is who he is. In fact, that's what his name, Yahweh, means. I am who I am. And so he is who he has revealed himself to be to us through his word, through his actions, and preeminently through his son, Jesus. And to know him and have an abiding relationship with him, we need to know him in accordance with who he really is. We need to know and be grounded and anchored in the truth. That's John's burden in this letter. That's what he wants to, you know, anchor us more deeply and, and encourage us in to know that we can know that we have an abiding relationship with God because we're anchored in the truth. And what we're going to see here is that the truth he wants to anchor us in is the teaching of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's look together um, at this short, one of the shorter books in the Bible, Second uh, John. Again, it's on page 1023 in your pew Bible. And if you look at the introduction, uh, you'll notice it's a little bit different from how he started his first letter. Um, in his first letter, he didn't really address uh, anybody. Uh, but here he has an address to the elect lady and her children in verse 1. And people debate exactly what that means. You know, is he writing to a, like a literal lady or is he speaking metaphorically? Um, and most likely he's speaking metaphorically, writing to a church, and a local church and its members, the lady and her children. And uh, there are several reasons to think that, but one of them is just looking at how he lands the letter in his uh, conclusion. He greets them, he extends to them greetings from the children of your elect sister, verse 13. So in other words, he's kind of using a metaphor of this woman or bride or lady, which is a common metaphor for the church in the Bible, and her children to talk about these different churches. We're not sure why he's being vague. Um, is he being protective? or, or uh, We don't know, but it seems like he's addressing a church that he has some connection to. And, and he's writing with a lot of the same burdens we saw him have in 1 John. If you have been with us through our study of 1 John, as, as uh, Mike read the scriptures earlier, a lot of that probably sounded pretty familiar to you. A lot of the same imagery and a lot of the same themes that John is talking about. Uh, for instance, look at verses 5 through 6. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment just as you heard from the beginning so that you should walk in it. You know, if you had to come up with a summary 
of what John is kind of aiming at and calling the church to in 1 John, that verse would be a really good uh, suggestion. It's a great summary of some of the same things he's been talking about, the importance of loving one another, the importance of obeying God's commands. And we see that he's also responding to a similar situation in, in the church he's writing to, a similar threat in verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. It sounds a lot like what John talked about in 1 John 2 and in 1 John 4, the same burden and threat that there are those who've left the community teaching about knowing God, but at the same time denying that Jesus is the way to know him denying that Christ has come in the flesh. And John's worried about that. He's worried because if, if, if people are taken in by that, then they're going to be cut off, disconnected from Christ. They're going to be trusting something else than the gospel for their hope in life. And so he wants his readers to be vigilant, to be on their guard, um, so, that, so that the work, the groundwork that the apostles have laid will not be undone. He says in verse 8, Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Guard yourself so that, so that the prize of knowing God is not snatched away from your hand, but you will enjoy that abiding relationship forever. Be on your guard. And how do you do that? How, how do we guard ourselves? We do that by remaining in the teaching of Christ. Verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. This is the heart of John's argument. This is the punch that he wants us to see. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. How can we remain in an abiding relationship with God to be, and be able to distinguish between you know, the teachers we're listening to, whether they're telling the truth or not? Here's John's suggestion. Here's his exhortation, his call. Do we or do they hold fast to the teaching of Jesus Christ? Do we make our home in the gospel And do we settle down there? Or are we kind of a restless wanderer who feels this call to uproot from the gospel and kind of go on ahead? John wants us to plant deep roots in the teaching of Christ, the teaching that he's been talking about throughout his letters, the the teaching that if you were to go back and read through the gospel of John, that's the message he's talking about, who Jesus is, what he's come to do. The fact that that the Father sends His eternal Son into this world to take on human flesh, to live a perfect, sinless life in our place as our representative, and then to give His life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. To, To take on Himself the punishment that we deserve for our sin, to take it and say, no, punish me instead. You take my righteousness, I'll take your sin so that he could redeem a people for himself, so that we could have relationship with God. That's the message. That's the teaching. 
and then to rise from the dead and to conquer sin and death on the third day. That's the anchor of truth. Walking in the truth requires being anchored in the gospel of Jesus. Whoever goes on ahead of the gospel and does not stay at home in the gospel does not have God, according to John. Whoever makes their home in the teaching of Jesus and in who he is and what he's done has God. That's his warning. That's how we are to think about our own lives and and that's the standard by which we evaluate truth in our own lives and it's the standard by which we evaluate truth as we're engaging with others who talk about God. Uh, If you look at uh, verses 10 through 11, John applies this standard to uh, how they ought to evaluate folks who come around teaching uh, things about God. Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, this teaching of the gospel of Jesus, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, the situation John's describing, this idea of, of kind of traveling teachers who would kind of come around and, and with a message about God, it's a bit of a strange concept for us today. Uh, and he's going to talk more about that next week, what that meant in his day, and maybe we can apply some of the parallels uh, from there. But you know, we might think of it in our context um, as how we promote or vouch for maybe some of the books that we read. Or, or some of the, the podcasts we listen to, or, or the teachers, the Bible preachers we watch on TV. How do we evaluate what we're receiving? You know, it's, it's not uncommon for us to kind of, you know, wow, you've got to read this book, or you've got to listen to the sermon. And that's a great thing. But what's the standard by which we, you know, what standard do we use to discern whether or not that's a good thing, to pass that on and, and kind of vouching for the credibility of it? Or what's the standard we use to, to know whether or not I should recommend this? Um, that might be one of the ways we can see what John's talking about in our context. And the standard is the gospel. If they don't bring this teaching with them, don't put your stamp of approval on it and don't support their cause. That's what John's telling us, whoever abides in the teaching of Christ, the biblical gospel of Christ's life, death, and resurrection has God, whoever goes on ahead of it and therefore leaves the gospel behind does not have God. Now, you step back for a moment from that. That's, that's the point he's trying to drill into us. You think about what he's saying, that that. There's the difference between living according to reality and having a relationship with God is whether or not we have Jesus. And if you have him, you have God. And if you don't, you don't. That is a big claim about truth. That's a huge claim with huge implications to suggest that that the anchor and standard for truth is what the Bible tells us about Jesus. He's making a big claim. To say that all other claims about how to know God should be held up to the standard of Jesus, that's a big claim. And it's a pretty exclusive claim. You know, unless you have faith in Jesus, you don't know God. 
If you're trying to relate to God without trusting in Jesus, you're not carving your own path or following your own star. You are living a lie. That's what John is saying. That's a big claim. And so I think it's worth our time this morning to take a minute and ask, how do we know that claim is true? Like this is, this is life and death stuff. This is big stuff. So, so how do I know that I should make my home in the gospel and be settled and satisfied there and not go looking uh, for other ways of knowing God? How, how can I be confident that if I have Jesus, I really do have God? Why should I believe this claim that John is holding out before us? Can it deliver on what it promises? And is it true? And of course, you know, at the end of the day, walking with God is always a matter of faith. No rational argument is going... Nobody's ever become a Christian because they lost an argument. You know, God does the work of his spirit to fill our hearts with faith. But that doesn't mean there aren't good reasons for why what the New Testament says is true. And I want to consider four of those reasons, four ways that Jesus is unparalleled, that he's utterly unique and supreme in bringing us to God. Uh, four reasons that he can say the kinds of things he says in John fourteen six. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How can Jesus get away saying something like that? Well, four reasons for the uniqueness and supremacy of Christ. Number one, only Jesus fulfills the plan and promises of the Old Testament. Only Jesus fulfills the plan and promises of the Old Testament. Sounds like an odd place to start, but I think if we remember that the story of Jesus doesn't start in Matthew, but it starts clear back before the beginning of time and the record God has given us of his work through uh, history in the scriptures, you know, one of the unique things about Jesus is how frequently the New Testament points us back to the Old Testament in order to make sense of him, who he is and what he came to do. This week I was studying Matthew with a friend, and we couldn't get past verse 1 very far without having to go back to the Old Testament and understand who is this, who is this Jesus? What does it mean that he's the son of David, the son of Abraham, the Messiah? And, and so Jesus doesn't step into this world in a vacuum. He comes to bring fulfillment to a story that's already being told. A story of God from before the beginning of time, a story that starts with God's plan for creation, what he intended to do with this thing we call earth. A plan to bring glory to himself and to create a people who looked like him, a people who bore his image, who had a special relationship with him, who, who reflected his character, who represented his kingdom. That's what we were put on this earth to do. And it's a, you know, you stop and you think about that. You look at your neighbor. If, if we were made to be a perfect reflection of the character and holiness of God, that was the job description. You look at your neighbor and you're like, sorry, not so much. You know, something went wrong in that design plan at some point. But it wasn't a flaw in the design. It was a flaw. It was a user operator error. We 
broke the plan by sinning against God, by deciding that we would do a better job running his world than he would. And, and so this story takes a, a dive southward, and as the first humans rebel against God and his rule, and they bring judgment on himself and a curse on this world and separate themselves from the God who made them and the God who loves them. And yet, this Old Testament story, uh, when it took that dive south, it's not like God was some struggling author who just kind of tears the paper up, throws it in the trash, and starts over. Instead, he makes a promise to a man named Abraham that he is going to redeem this broken world and restore a people to himself. And most of the rest of the Old Testament, and really the New Testament, is the unfolding of that promise. How's God going to make good on that promise? And the Old Testament story, it's, it's a long story, it's a big book, and it's full of, you know, uh, different people and covenants and temples and prophets and priests and kings and promises of a day when God's glory will finally fill the earth as the waters cover the sea, of a day when, when what he planned in the beginning will finally and forever be true. And so there's a vision that God gives for his world. But what ties that vision together, what moves that story forward is a person that we're told is going to come and bring it all together. The Old Testament is longing and looking for this particular person. Genesis describes him as the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent, of the, of the offspring of Abraham through whom every nation on earth will be blessed. Leviticus shows us a picture of a priest who's going to offer a perfect sacrifice to cover our sins. Deuteronomy tells us about a prophet like Moses who will speak God's true words. Joshua shows us a a picture of someone who's going to take us into the final promised land. Judges makes us long for a ruler who doesn't keep sinning against God and who doesn't keep dying so that the whole people go to pot. The son of David is promised in Samuel and in Psalms. One who's going to sit on David's throne forever and do for God's people what they can't do for themselves in bringing righteousness and peace. Isaiah tells us about a suffering servant who's going to crush, who's going to be crushed for our iniquities and bruised for our sin, by whose wounds you and I will be healed. The Old Testament's longing for this person. Only Jesus fulfills that plan. Only Jesus' life and work can be shown to unambiguously correspond to the promises and hopes of the Old Testament. From his birth in Bethlehem, which was foretold in Micah, to his healing ministry from Isaiah 53, to being rejected by his disciples, Zechariah, to his crucifixion and resurrection. Passages like Psalm 16, Isaiah 53. Jesus alone takes up the Old Testament story and fulfills it. And when you look at, you know, when you consider the fact that here we are reading a really old book, 
written a long time before Jesus, the Old Testament. And yet we're reading about his life centuries before he stepped onto this earth. We're reading specific things about his life. You think of Psalm 22, verse 16. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. It's a prophetic description of how the Messiah would die. A description of Roman crucifixion 800 years before that torture was invented. So so you read through the Old Testament, you read how Jesus not only fulfills it, but you see that we have confidence that God's word is true. He's writing about things centuries before they happen, and we see them come alive in Christ. That's amazing. Only Jesus fulfills the plan and promises of the Old Testament. And if that's true, then only Jesus can connect our life to this bigger story that God is telling. You know, these big questions of why in the world am I even here? What is God doing? Uh, What is life all about? How can my life matter? If Jesus is the fulfillment of God's story, he's also our access to God's story. If you want to answer those questions, you will find those answers in Jesus Christ. So that's number one. Number two, only Jesus is qualified to reconcile human sinners with a holy God. Human sinners, that's us, with a holy God. And the, the reason only he can do that is because only Jesus is both true God and true human. Now that idea of true God, someone being truly God, truly human at the same time, that's one of those you know, mind-blowing things that it's hard to wrap your head around. But it's the only way that salvation is actually possible. Only God is able to save. We're told throughout the Bible, salvation belongs to God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Only God is able to save. Only he can save people from their sin and reconcile them to themselves and to himself. And so, so the kind of savior we need kind of needs to be God if it's going to work. Only God can save. And yet we also need a savior who's truly human. Someone who can stand in our place and represent us before the Father to be and to do for us what we couldn't be and do for ourselves. A faithful son, the obedient servant, the perfect image of God. And then to take the punishment we deserved on our, on himself. And so if Jesus isn't truly human, he's not qualified to represent us. The author of Hebrews tells us that, that Jesus had to be made like his brothers, us fellow humans, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So so in order for sinners to be reconciled to a holy God, we need a Savior who is both God and man. Only God can save, only a human can stand in our place. And the Bible tells us that's exactly what Jesus and who Jesus is. True God, true human. Colossians says he's the inv- he is the image of the invisible God. We were made in God's image. He is the image. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This imagery of true God, true man. Hebrews says he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. No other savior is that true of. And because only Jesus is true God and true man at the same time, only he is qualified to reconcile us to God. No other savior. We can't do it ourselves. We can, there's nothing we can do to work our way up to God and be accepted in his presence. We need a savior. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. So only Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Only Jesus is qualified to reconcile human sinners with the holy God. Number three, only Jesus enables God to deal justly with sin and mercifully with sinners. It's kind of a lot of work for a human sinner to be able to enter into the presence of a holy God. That's not a small thing. Read this week, you know, Someone with sin, being in the presence of God is like a piece of tissue paper touching the, the surface of the sun. It takes a lot of... How in the world can this happen? Jesus is qualified to do it, but what does it actually take for it to occur? We need someone who is able to let God deal justly with sin and mercifully with sinners. God must, must punish sin and rebellion. He can't just wink at it. You know, we do that with our kids sometimes when we're too lazy to discipline them. You know, they do something we tell them not to do. But it's going to be inconvenient for me if I actually take away what I told them I would take away because then I've got to come up with some other activity. And so we just kind of wink at it in our laziness. I'm not the only one, am I? You know, God can't do that because then he would be an unjust God. You know, if, if, if a judge winks at a crime and just says, eh, I'll let you go. Justice has not been served. So he can't, he can't complete his job and, be, uh, and just wink at, at those things, and neither can God. He must deal with sin. Sin must be punished if he's going to be holy and just. And the reality is we are guilty as charged when it comes to sin. You know, Ecclesiastes says that, Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So how can a holy God have mercy on sinners who don't deserve it? Um, we need a substitutionary sacrifice through our representative Savior. We need someone who's going to stand in our place and credit us with his righteousness while taking our guilt upon himself and paying the penalty. And that's what Jesus does. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes it in Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared not guilty of their sin by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. To be received by faith. And we, that word propitiation, we've seen that in John's letters, right? It's that atoning sacrifice that bears the wrath of God in place as a substitute. And, and look at what that sacrifice enables God to do. This was to show God's righteousness. 
because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, holy, righteous, and the justifier, the one who declares not guilty of the one who has faith in Jesus. He is dealing justly with sin and mercifully with sinners because Jesus took our sin in our place. Only Jesus enables God to do that. Otherwise, there's only one of two ways you can have a relationship with God. You can either be perfect and never break his law. Sorry, none of us can do that. Or, the only other option then is to suffer his judgment. That's it. Without a substitute who is righteous and who takes our sin, there is no relationship possible with God. And number four, only Jesus operates by grace instead of performance, fear, or shame. Only Jesus operates by grace. Because he's that sacrifice, that substitute, only he can operate by grace. So if you think about what we talked about at the beginning, uh, this surprisingly common link between Nebraska and New England, the idea that, you know, basically what spirituality or religion means is me trying to live a good life, uh, put out the positive energy, make a difference, and so on. And that's, you know, hopefully the kind of God, the kind of life that God will reward. Well, the reality is that's not unique to nominal Christianity or North American spiritualism, this is the default mode of human beings, of fallen human beings. We all are legalists by nature. That's the modus operandi of every human religion apart from Jesus. That we relate to God by keeping the rules. We hope we keep them well enough to stay on his good side. And we're terrified of what will happen if we don't. That is human religion. But here's the problem. That game is rigged. There's no way to win it. No one's actually good enough, and no one is good enough to always do good, and no one's good enough to make it up or compensate when they do wrong. Instead, the average religious or spiritual experience is somewhere cycling back and forth between pride, when we feel like we're doing a good job keeping God happy, however we define God, or despair and shame when we recognize that we're falling short again and and we're afraid of what will happen uh, if we don't clean our act up and, and or what will happen, what people will think when they find out. And we just cycle back and forth. That's the game of religion. That's the game of spirituality. It's fixed. There's no way to win it. But this is not the teaching of Christ. That's not the gospel of Christ. Jesus doesn't operate on performance, be good for God, or fear, or shame. He operates on grace. The simplest way to think about grace is that God gives us something indescribably wonderful, even though we deserve something utterly terrible. That's grace. God gives us something indescribably wonderful. He gives us himself. He gives us relationship with him, an abiding, enduring relationship, having been forgiven of our sins, made whole 
through Christ. He gives us something absolutely incredible, even though we deserve something utterly terrible. We actually do deserve his judgment for our sin. And the only way he's able to do that again is through the cross. Because of the cross, Jesus can operate on grace. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. As much as you want to take the credit, you can't. You can't. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. He's the one doing the work. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, for obedience, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Jesus operates by grace. No other religion does that. No other version of spirituality does that. No other uh, religion offers confidence of God's love and acceptance, not based on what I do for him, but on what Jesus has done for me. What a game changer. What an absolute game changer. And therefore, no other religion is able to generate true love for God. A love that is not interested in what I can get out of God, but simply interested in God. Simply interested in Him. A love that shows itself in obedience to His commands and love for His children, not so that I can be accepted, but because I have been accepted through faith in Jesus. Only Jesus operates by grace. Only he offers a way of knowing God that actually works. He's the only qualified Savior who's done what it takes to reconcile us to God. We can't do it ourselves. We need a Savior who is true God and true human, who lived and died in our place. We need the gospel. We need the teaching of Jesus. And we need to make our home in it. We need to abide in it and never move on. doesn't mean we are closed-minded in engaging ideas in the world. Absolutely not. But it means that our confidence and our commitment is to the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ. That is our home, and that is where we must stay. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you that you did not create us and then just kind of leave us to ourselves to figure you out. Thank you that you are a God who speaks, that you are a God who has revealed yourself through your word and preeminently through your Son. Lord, we want to see you and we want to trust you. And we want to make our home in you. So I pray, Lord, wherever... Each person here is today. Whatever our stories, whatever our questions, whatever our doubts or fears, whatever shame we carry with us, whatever confusion, whatever religious commitments, Lord, would you help us to see Jesus clearly and to fall upon him? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.